Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So how's everybody doing? There's a joke we have on these retreats, which is that uh, if you're still here, you're doing great. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. It's not easy. It's not easy to be with our own mind <laughs> for hour after hour with, uh, without too many distractions other than Jess and I <laughs> talking to you. <clears throat> one of uh, one of our colleagues, a teacher by the name of Heather Sundberg, when when she teaches metta, she likes to talk about the different categories as muses, finding your muse, like your inspiration, and I really love that. What is it that brings us back to that basic human warmth, like the Dalai Lama says, that innate capacity for warmth and care and love. One of my muses uh, in this practice um, was my, my, has been my dad's mom, my grandma on my dad's side. Uh, my dad was born in British Palestine and uh, his parents came to, uh, to the, what's now the state of Israel in, um, in the twenties uh, before the second world war. Uh, from Poland and Belarus and met, met in Israel. They were young um, socialists, idealists, wanting to start a new society. And uh, my grandma, my dad's mom, um, a very brilliant woman who uh, lived at a time where she didn't have opportunities to, uh, to really study and learn. And she raised her family. She. Uh, dedicated her life to raising her family, and this is uh, some some tragedy there, some loss in the given the time that she lived. And uh, by the time I knew her, she was quite old, and um, she had always worked with her hands all through life. She made all of the clothes that my father and his family wore. They were very poor growing up, and. They, uh, she managed to feed. There was three children, you know, all five of them. They had goats and rabbits and chickens, and she worked with her hands a lot. And by the time I knew her, her hands were quite, um, quite worn. Very, you know, her knuckles were large and small. She was a small woman, but had these very powerful hands. Uh, and even though she was old, her hands were still very soft. All the skin was, um, wrinkled but very but so soft and kind of plump in a way and uh, she spoke hebrew and i didn't there's a reason they call it the mother tongue my father did not teach me hebrew um and we would spend time together like playing cards or just holding hands and i just i remember the warmth in her hands and the love in her eyes when she would look at me. It 
And it just brings me right back to that sense of this being loved and seen unconditionally. There's this beautiful image in uh, the text that uh, Jessica and I have been referring to, the Visuddhimagga, where this one of the methods we're practicing comes from, of uh, a series, a stream flowing down a hillside with a series of pools. And metta is described as like the practice, you, you, you fill up the first pool at the top, the way water flows down into it. And then when that pool is full, it spills over and starts to fill the next pool below it and so forth and so forth. And these categories that Jess was describing earlier, is like we're, we're extending the circle of our affection one layer at a time and that image of, of the heart filling until it naturally kind of spills over. So we start where it's easy, where, where is your muse? Where do you find that connection? What brings you back to remembering this capacity for love that we have as human beings? And then let it build from there. And all kinds of things come up in the process. As we've acknowledged, we've regrets over the past, things we've done, speaking harshly, maybe pain that we're carrying from some relationship or anger, resentment, might feel anxiety, places we've been hurt or let down. It all comes up and as we've been saying, it's this practice is about including it all, including it all. When we find that muse, when we, when we touch into that quality of metta, one of the ways I like to think about it is it's like having a tuning fork. We were talking about this in one of my small groups. So if you play an instrument and you don't have a home note, you don't have like a 440A and you're, you're, you don't know if your instrument's in tune or not. It might be in tune with itself, but not objectively. So when we touch into that quality of unconditional metta, kindness with no strings attached, it's like we get that home note, that tuning fork. It's like, ah, right, right. That's what it feels like to, to, to give and receive love, to just rest in that space and share that field that Jess was talking about in the guided meditation. Now, what happens if you have a tuning fork and then you play a note on your instrument? All of a sudden you hear, oh, that's a little bit flat or wow, it's a little bit sharp. So once we start to touch into metta, it reveals more clearly the contrast, all of those places that are not metta. We start to feel what we sometimes call the near enemy or the decoy. It's like a near miss. It seems like metta, but it's not where we want something back from the other person. Like, may you just be happy so you stop bothering me, <laughs> right? So you stop complaining or May you finally find work so you're not home as much. It's like, no, 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 that's not metta. <laughs> so we, we start to sense some of these other aspects and they become more and more clear. The more we touch into metta, the more we notice what's not metta. And the practice is learning how to return, how to come back again and again to that quality of goodwill.
as as I said earlier this morning, it's easy to be kind when we're happy, when we're with our friends. It's in the times where we're bored or sleepy or irritable or angry that we really need to practice. How do I find that that space of kindness? Thomas Merton said, prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. So maybe some of you have had some moments today where it's felt like metta is impossible and the heart has turned to stone. Stick with it. Just, just be patient. Keep aiming, keep aiming. Use the phrases, that's why they're there. In the Buddhist tradition, we talk about five um, common blocks that come up in any practice we're doing, whether it's Vipassana or Metta or any of the other practices in this tradition. I wanna just acknowledge and mention them uh, briefly because it's, it's likely that one or two of these may have visited you today, or if not today, over the course of the next few days. So you can spot these. They're very clearly not metta, and uh, they're called hindrances or obstacles because they can, they can get in the way of our continuing to practice. Uh, so there's two pairs and then a fifth. So the pairs are craving and aversion, wanting something and not wanting something. The next pair is sloth and torpor, sleepiness and apathy, and restlessness, too little energy, too much energy. And then the fifth is doubt. So craving is a heart that's hungry. Our heart has lost its connection with a sense of fullness or contentment, and it's, it's trying to get something. The Buddha compared it to like a pond filled with beautiful dyes. So just notice as you're practicing, is the mind starting to fantasize or long for things? That's craving. Pulls us out of the present moment, disconnects us from our heart. Or the opposite energy, aversion, not wanting something, pulling away, pushing away. It's a heart that's like agitated and sour and prickly a heart that's lost its connection with metta, with warmth. And the Buddha compared this to a pond that's boiling, it's bubbling. Sloth and torpor, so mental apathy, physical, physical tiredness is a heart that's like sinking. It's lost a sense of vitality and vigor. And the Buddha compared this to a pond with algae over the top, covered in thick moss, algae muddy, you can't see into it. The opposite, too much energy, we can't sit still, the heart's really agitated. It's lost its sense of stability and center. It's lost, lost presence. And the, the Buddha compared this to a pond with wind ruffling up the surface. And doubt. Doubt is the heart that that can't settle, that's like wavering, it's lost confidence. This is, that is, this. should I do this? Should I, should I go on to the friend or stay with the benefactor? Should I receive it? Should I send it? Oh, I should change my phrases. We're just spinning, spinning, spinning. The pond that's full of, full of mud in the dark. So with all of these, you can't see through the water. The pond is the mind and the hindrances block our ability to see, to settle, to connect. 
when the hindrances start to be at bay, the pond is still, it's clear, you can see in, in the heart has, is starting to be full with these qualities. So what do we do when all of these other things come up? Everything, everything other than metta. How do we practice when there's pain, when there's anger in ourselves from another? So let's start by keeping it really simple. So essentially when you're practicing metta and something is getting in the way, whether it's thinking, restlessness, sleepiness, craving, aversion, doubt, pain, you, you have two options. First, obviously, is noticing it. So when we're lost, we're lost. We can't do anything about it. As soon as you notice, you're already on the path. You're already practicing. Awareness has returned, coming home. This is a good thing. So the first step is always to just acknowledge the truth. Okay, this is what's happening right now. Okay. The first option is you just kind of bow to it. You see it. I see you. Okay. Sleepiness. Okay. Fear. Okay. Grief. Okay. Loss. Hello. And I'm, I'm doing something else now. I'll spend time with you later. We're not rejecting it. We're not suppressing it. There's a moment of recognition that says, yes, you too have a place here in my heart. And right now I'm, gonna, I'm doing something else. And we return, we come back to metta. Or if you're doing compassion or mudita, some of the other practices we'll share with you. So you acknowledge it and you just let it be. Come back to the, the technique that you're using. This is one option. Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes you do that two times, three times, four times, and it keeps knocking, it keeps coming back. Or the amount of energy it takes to, to stay with the phrases and not be with what's happening is just taking up too much energy. So if it feels really strong, it's taking a lot of energy, it's insistent, again, we acknowledge it. Hello, okay, who are you? And then turn towards it. You just welcome it in. All right. Let's be with this. So this is the basic choice. Both of them, we acknowledge what's true first. It's just that sense of, ah, I see you. We might move away, come back to the metta, or we might choose to stay with it. So when we stay with it, what happens? Well, Depending, this is where the, the kind of intuitive wisdom of meditation practice and the creativity comes in. So you might, you might recognize that it's really hard. You're very activated. There's a lot of thoughts. You feel tight in your throat and kind of like heavy in your heart. And it's a lot. So you might just come to your anchor, come to the breath, you come to sound and just soothe. Just take some time like, whoa, this is a lot. Okay, I'm just going to breathe. Breathing in, breathing out, notice sounds, and just soothe, take some time with the anchor. You might practice mindfulness with that emotion or thought or experience. So you become fully conscious of it. What is this experience? What's it made of? What are the sensations? What are the thoughts? What are the, the different memories and impulses that are coming up? Trying to stay balanced, you take your time exploring it, letting it move through you. 
Another option, and what I want to focus on this evening, is we might apply compassion. So if we're suffering, an appropriate response is tenderness, to just hold it, not try to fix it, not try to understand it, but just to bring some tenderness to it that just says, oh, this is hard. Okay, let me just be with this, you know. Ah, oh, sweetheart. Okay. I'm here for you. Uh, a few years ago, uh, a good buddy of mine from high school, who uh, I'm still close with, sent me a, a video. We, we send each other like little, you know, touching or funny things on the, on our phone. And he sent me this video of um, a sparrow on a fence. You start off, you see this little sparrow on a fence. So it's kind of, it's morning and it's cold. You can see there's a little frost on the fence. And very quickly it becomes apparent that the sparrow is frozen to the metal bar on the fence. And, and obviously someone's filming it because we're seeing it. And then you see these this, this hand come in to the frame. It's kind of fairly uh, hefty hand and very, very firmly comes around the sparrow and holds it. Not too hard, but firmly, just to kind of calm it. And then this this hot air from the from the, the man's breath on the legs of the sparrow. And after a few breaths, a few moments, you can see the sparrow start to move and wiggle and, and then he picks it up and then he opens his hand. He says, here we go, little birdie, go ahead, fly away. And the, and the sparrow just flies away. It's so touching, such a beautiful example of the naturalness of compassion when we see suffering. And of what's required, there's that, we have to notice the suffering. There has to be some strength, some steadiness to hold it. There needs to be warmth to soothe it. And then there's the letting go. There's no attachment to the outcome. It's just, there you go, it's yours. Be free. So I wanna talk about this quality of compassion both for the times when we need it, like when, when we're sort of like that sparrow, <laughs> frozen and stuck, and as an aspect of the awakened heart, of how we meet the world, of another uh, kind of like dimension of the mature whole human heart. So just like metta is, is a home note, like maybe metta is the, the A, the 440A, compassion, is another home note of the human heart. That's a root for us. So the word in the Pali language, the language of the Buddhist texts uh, for compassion is karuna. And it's related to the word karma. We all probably know the word karma, which literally means action, to do something. And so karuna has embedded in it action. It's about how we respond to suffering, our own and others. 
So the definition of compassion that, that I like to use um, that I learned from Sharon Salzberg is compassion is the willingness to turn towards suffering and to see if we can help. Not to rush in and fix it, <laughs> not to make it all better, to see if we can help. So, and in that, there are two parts. So compassion has a receptive aspect, which is empathy. That's the aspect that notices the suffering and receives it. We attune, we quiver. It's the part of the heart that trembles, that resonates, that feels the pain of another, of ourself, of the world. But that just that in and of itself isn't compassion. That's only one aspect. The other aspect is the movement towards it, towards, not into. The movement towards the suffering that's the active component of compassion. There's a readiness to respond, the intention to, to alleviate, to soothe, to see if we can help. So I wanna talk about how this quality of compassion is related to metta and the other aspects of the Brahma Viharas, uh, and then kind of unpack it a little bit. What do we mean by compassion? How can we start to get to know it and practice it? So one way of understanding these four innate qualities of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity is as different ways of seeing, different ways of relating to life. Or rather we could say innate resources, innate qualities of the heart that come forth based on different ways of seeing. My cat is chewing on my books. Lexi, stop it. Hey, please don't do that. <laughs> so metta, when does metta arise? Metta arises when we see the goodness in others. It's a heart that is attuned to the humanity and the goodness. It's the heart that connects compassion, when we see the suffering, when we see the pain and the vulnerability, the heart embraces. It includes and responds. That's the movement of compassion, to embrace and respond. And it arises when we see the pain, we attune to it, we recognize it. Oh, there it is. There's that part that hurts. I know that. Mudita, appreciative joy, celebration. We see the success. We see the, the gain and the pleasure, the joy of another. And then the heart rejoices, it celebrates. That's the movement of mudita. Equanimity sees change. It sees all of it. It sees the ups and the downs. So the heart that notices change and sees everything coming and going, its response is to widen, to step back. So these are different ways of attuning to life. And then the heart responds based on how we're orienting and what we're seeing. So the capacity of compassion, just as all of the other ones, is innate. 
And just if you saw a toddler in a store that was lost, how would you respond? Or if you saw a puppy in pain, <laughs> it's just the heart's right there, you know? It's innate and just as, as these other qualities, it's something we can strengthen. We can build compassion. And when we, when we consider how we usually respond to pain and suffering habitually, we, we get a sense of how radically different in orientation compassion is. So just to, I invite you to just take a moment and think about the last time, let's say you were really suffering in pain, struggling. Maybe it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it was today. What was the knee-jerk reaction? Not, not, the, not the reaction when you're aware and practicing, but the habitual reaction, the conditioned reaction. Right? What do we do when we're in pain? Do we reach for something sweet? Try to distract ourselves? Do we shrug it off? I'll, I'll be okay, whatever. That was in the past. It's just, just done. I don't, don't worry about it. Do we avoid it? Try to bury it or numb out? And people can spend a lifetime just focused on keeping going to avoid the pain. Or, or do we isolate? Do we try to hide it, feel embarrassed or ashamed, thinking somehow it's our fault? I remember very clearly in my family uh, when one of, one of my uh, family members started having mental health issues. It's very scary. I was quite young, I was about 10 years old. And I remember my parents saying to me more or less, don't tell anyone about this. This is, this is just in our family. It's a secret. So we get these messages explicitly or implicitly. It's not okay to have a hard time. It's not okay to let other people see your pain. We have to pretend. Make sure no one sees it. And if we don't have other resources, if we don't have other ways of being with the pain, we just do our best, right? We just find whatever we can to get through. Or how about other people's pain? People we care about, people we're in contact with, how do we respond when we're not balanced and present and awake? Do we withdraw? Again, do we avoid it and pretend? or try to try to you know minimize oh you'll be okay you'll get over it don't worry about it you'll bounce back do we get overwhelmed do we rush in and try to fix it or solve it take over cuz we can't deal with it do we blame them you know you really should have known better it's you know it's really i told you i told you this would happen <laughs> when are you going to learn Or when someone gets sick, and our whole culture is frightened, terrified of death and old age and sickness. We hide it 
in a hospital or a home, lest we feel uncomfortable, lest we actually have to face the reality <laughs> that we're all aging and it's not in our control. The, the, there's, there's like both beauty and tragedy in all of that. The beauty is that we're, we're doing the best we can. Like these, these habitual responses are what we know to protect our heart, to get through, to get by. And the tragedy of, of how much energy they take and how disconnecting they are and how they can often make things worse or exacerbate them or shut us down. The Buddha said he referred to these Brahma Viharas as a protection. He said, this is the only protection you'll ever need. Metta, karuna, mudita, upekka. What did he mean by that? What does it mean when we say, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm? What does it mean to be protected from inner harm? These qualities are like this vast and immense well of resource that protects us from moving into numbness, despair, ill will, resentment, fear, blame, shame. They protect us from digging ourselves in deeper to suffering from all of the kind of jerry-rigged duct tape things we've cobbled together along the way to limp through life and get by because we didn't have enough training, support, love, time, space to deal with what was happening. And when we can meet pain with tenderness, when we can acknowledge its truth and really hold it, we don't pass it on. We don't inflict that suffering on others. We can, we can end that cycle right here in our own body. This is the potential and the invitation of this, of this whole path really, which begins with the acknowledgement of suffering and the willingness to turn towards it that instead of turning away, instead of all of those ways that we all know and use when we don't have other options, we can notice the difficulty, just like seeing that little bird on the fence. We, we see it, we notice it, and we can turn towards it with care, with strength, and with compassion and allow ourselves to be touched and when we can when we can let it in when we when we have the resources when we have the conditions to allow ourselves to be touched by life something beautiful happens we discover that we might be stronger than we thought we were that that we're not broken or rather that our brokenness is part of the truth of being human. 
and that we're not alone, that it's in our vulnerability and our hardship that we, we see each other, that we feel connected. And by holding and meeting that pain and difficulty and hurt, we, we, we can open into a profound sense of connection to all of humanity and, and life through our vulnerability. So true compassion is a very strong and, and stable state. It's not weak. It's not about being a pushover. It's not about saying yes to everything. It takes honesty. It takes courage. It takes stability to turn towards pain and suffering and, ha and have the space to hold it. And it can look many different ways. It's not a prescription for action. As I said, it doesn't mean saying yes. There's a need to have compassion for ourselves sometimes by setting limits. We might have fierce compassion as it's called, being able to say no with love. And just as with metta, this, this tuning fork I was talking about. So with metta, the opposite, sometimes it's called the far enemy of metta is hate, hatred hostility, ill will, very clear. The near miss, the decoy of metta, attachment, control. It's like kindness with strings attached. I'll be nice to you if, right? Not metta, but it can feel like it. It can seem like that. Same thing with compassion. So the opposite of compassion is cruelty. Instead of having tenderness for suffering, we enjoy the suffering of another. We want to inflict that suffering. It's that feeling of like, oh yeah, well, how about this? And you want, to, you want to twist it in and turn it when we're hurt and we want someone else to feel it. And that cruelty is the absence of empathy, right? It's such a dangerous state when we lose empathy, when we, when we create someone as an other, whether it's because of their actions or their gender, their skin color, their nationality or immigration status, doesn't matter. As soon as we see someone as other and lose that sense of empathy, we open the doorway to, to justifying all kinds of brutality. This is a, a quote from Dr. King uh, from a speech he gave at Cornell College in Iowa in 1962. He said, I am convinced that humans hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other and they don't know each other because they don't communicate with each other and they don't communicate with each other because they are separated from each other. A very powerful book, uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. It talks about the uh, period in the late 1800s as the uh, United States government expanded westward and uh, claimed native lands and forcibly removed the tribes from the Midwest and the uh, West Coast. It was devastating, devastating book. If you haven't read it, I, I deeply recommend it. A very powerful story there about um, a place called Fort Laramie. And this Indian chief comes in back to the fort. Um, 
He had a relationship with the general who was there. His daughter had died from uh, disease and he came back to try to have his daughter buried at the, at the fort. And uh, she had grown up playing there at the fort. There was a cordial relationship between the tribe and the soldiers. It's kind of an outpost. And the, there's a, a quote from the general's diary when he was talking with the Indian chief about his daughter and the chief's wish that the daughter be buried at Fort Laramie because it was such a special place to her when she was a, a child, when she was a girl. And when the general agreed and, and said yes, the, the chief started to cry. And in his journal, he wrote, I did not know that an Indian could cry. It's if when I read that, it just, it was such a powerful illustration of the extent to which we can dehumanize one another. When we see, when we see someone as separate as an other, this is the absence of compassion. And then there's the near, the near miss. That's the, that's the, that's the opposite. It's very clear. With compassion, as we start to pay attention to it and practice it, it's easy to just be slightly off and that can show up in different ways. Sometimes we talk about the, the near miss of compassion as pity, which, which touches pain with aversion. It's like holding it at a distant distance. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry about that thing over there that you're experience, experiencing. It's like, I'm, I'm pulling away from it. I'm separate. Other times we, today in particular, in modern time, we talk about the near enemy of compassion as being overwhelm or burnout, sorrow. We, we fall into the suffering. Instead of just moving towards it and being in relationship to it, we become consumed by it, sometimes called empathic distress, where we become over-identified with another person's suffering. Now, the interesting thing about compassion is that not only is it a very strong and stable state, true compassion, when we're not falling into that sense of separation or overwhelm, but it's actually a pleasant state. So the, the research about compassion shows that the pleasure centers of the brain are activated in a true state of compassion. It feels good because we're not solely focusing on the suffering, we're actually focusing on the wish to alleviate it. Compassion is that sense of how can I help? What do you need? Hey, are you okay? And it's that movement to help that actually feels good. The Dalai Lama says, the first person to benefit from compassion is the one who feels it. So to do that, to really have that honest, strong, stable, available uh, capacity of compassion, the other Brahma-viharas support it. It has to be balanced by metta and joy. We need enough of the, the buoyancy of kindness and joy 
to keep from falling into the suffering. If all we see in, in life is the suffering, we miss the whole picture. And the, the warmth of metta, the, the uplift of, of, of mudita and joy, it kind of relieves some of the tension and soothes some of the pain. And then on the other side, compassion is balanced by wisdom. It's balanced by equanimity. And equanimity is that perspective, that sense of having space to understand that everyone's going to have hard times, that life is about change, and change includes pleasure and pain, gain and loss, joy and sorrow, and that it's not up to me. I can't fix it. I can't make it better. Without that piece of wisdom, it's very difficult to have true compassion because we think it's our responsibility. We think it's something gone wrong rather than recognizing, yeah, life's like this sometimes. Things aren't fair. It hurts. A family has taught me the most about this. You know, those closest to us, when we, we wish for them to not suffer, to make different choices, and we, we see that we're helpless to affect change in their lives. And in these cases, just presence in and of itself is an act of compassion, to just bear witness. And when we can do that, when we can bring this quality of a strong and stable, caring presence to suffering, that in and of itself can be healing. It can be healing and it can be the foundation for a response for action. So we're coming to the end of our time here and I wanna see what what else, if anything, I want to share with you? So starting tomorrow morning, we'll introduce some, um, some more instructions to practice with compassion. And uh, for some of you, this might just be uh, like... Um, an option during the retreat, you might stick with the metta practice primarily and bring in the compassion as needed. For others, you might choose to put down the metta and do a day of compassion practice tomorrow. That's, that's welcome. So it's up to you, it's up to you there. Now, whichever choice you make, I, I really wanna, I wanna encourage all of us to, to come back to this sense of, of including it all, no part left out. As Jess was saying earlier, you, you can't do this wrong if you have the intention. And with compassion, it's that intention to care, that intention to have tenderness. Oh, for me, one of the greatest teachers in my life of compassion has been my body. When I was in my 20s, I started having a chronic digestive condition. When I was in my 30s, I got 
um, Lyme disease. And I had kind of several cycles of chronic illness and it was not easy. Even having been practicing for 10, 15 years at various times, I still watched my mind go through all of the other responses, the fear, what's gonna happen if and how long and will I ever, the resistance, I don't want it, why is it happening? When's it gonna be over, the denial the wishing it would be otherwise, replaying over and over again in my mind, if only, what if, how could it have been otherwise? Feeling depressed, sinking, feeling overwhelmed, getting hopeful, then feeling despair again, kind of just cycles. And then, and through all of that, learning, learning compassion. You know, we, we see the suffering of the fear or the resistance or the, or the, the longing or the, the despair or the overwhelm. And it's, it's by seeing that which is not, in this case, compassion, that we remember and discover and come back to the compassion to say, oh, what would it be like to just hold this, to just bring tenderness? Ah, you're in pain, okay. It's like those steady, strong hands coming around the bird and holding it, calming it, warming it, and then just kind of leaning in, leaning in to breathe, to care, to offer that warmth of compassion to oneself. I think I want to I want to end with a quote from um, Antoine de Saint Exupéry. He wrote the book, uh, Le Petit Prince. This is from a different book of his called Wind, Sand, and Stars. And uh, I really think about this path sometimes as like learning to be our own best friend. And these qualities are really uh, just different facets of what it means to have true friendship with oneself and life. He says, old friends cannot be created out of hand. Nothing can match the treasure of common memories, of trials endured together, of quarrels and reconciliations and generous emotions. It is idle having planted an acorn in the morning to expect that afternoon to sit in the shade of an oak. So we're developing a, a kind of deep and old, intimate friendship with ourselves, with our heart, and through that with this world. So let's just sit quietly together for, uh, for a moment or two. Let the words settle.
Well, thank you so much for your kind and generous attention. Just encourage you to take what's useful and just leave the rest aside. All right. So we have a period of a um, couple of hours now for personal practice. Just follow your own rhythm. You do some sitting, some walking, some eating meditation as you need. And um, I'll be leading a, a silent sit at 7 o'clock California time, 10 o'clock. Uh, East Coast time. So maybe see you then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.